0: Matthew chapter 5 is where we'll be this morning. Again, if you have a phone or a tablet or whatever you have, feel free to use it. We also have Pew Bibles, and Matthew 5 is found on page 1502. We're continuing really in Matthew, looking at our study within a study. We've begun looking at um, the, the Sermon on the Mount that's obviously contained in. The book of Matthew. And we started this sermon just a few weeks ago. And in this sermon, Jesus is teaching us what it it looks like to be one of His disciples. What it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And if you remember, our our sermon series is titled, The Authority of Our King. So we've been spending the last couple months since December, tracing Jesus' authority through the book of Matthew. We saw that He was Authoritative, even in the way he came. Where, where wise men from other places came and they bowed down. He would be worthy of the worship of all the nations. And just kept tracing that into Matthew chapter 3 with John the Baptist. And John was saying, this guy, I'm not even worthy to touch the dirtiest part of this guy's clothing. I can't even touch this guy's sandals. He Revere Jesus that much and so we've continued moving through the book of Matthew tracing the authority of Jesus and so now Jesus is on the scene and he's shown his authority already you remember toward the end of Matthew chapter 4 he's, he's healed people of all kinds of diseases he's he's taken demons out of people he's walked along the Sea of Galilee and he's called unto himself uh, followers so as he's been doing these miracles and pulling demons out of people and all the rest, naturally a crowd has started to assemble around him. A crowd has, has started to come and, and to say, what is this guy like? What, why is he so authoritative? Why does what he says seem to carry so much weight? How can somebody take a, a lame person or a blind person and heal them? How is this possible but he begins, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus does, with this crowd around him. And he begins by blessing them. He says, blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are those who are persecuted. And as his disciples, Jesus explains, or in his Beginning of his sermon there, the blessing that is coming from his mouth, we realize that as his disciples, we are in this privileged position of blessing. Then he tells them, as, as we saw last week, we looked at the fact that we are to be salt and light. Disciples of Jesus are to be a preservative. We're to slow the moral decay of the earth. We're to find places to act as salt and and be rubbed into different areas of society and our community in order to slow the moral decay that is all around us. But then we also saw that we're to be light. We're to be a gospel presence in our communities and to show the light of the gospel. But this morning in our passage, Jesus is going to, to turn a little bit and he's going to focus in on how his disciples then... View the Old Testament. He's going to teach His disciples how to view the Old Testament. And this is an important question for disciples of Jesus. As disciples of Jesus here. We talked about it a little bit this morning on Sunday school. How are we going to view the Old Testament? Is it relevant to us under the New Covenant? We just had the Lord's table. And he says that this is the new covenant in my blood. And all of us here today, if we are trusting in Jesus, we relate to God through this new covenant. So as believers, under this new covenant is the Old Testament that had a lot to do with those who were under the Old Covenant. Does that have anything to do with us? Do any aspects of the law of Moses even apply to us as Christians? Do we have any obligation to live by or to teach certain parts of the law or the Old Testament in general? And if so, what does that look like? But let's go ahead and read Matthew five seventeen to 20 And hopefully by God's grace receive some answers this morning. Matthew 5, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I tell you the truth. Until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter. Not the least stroke you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray one more time. Lord, we thank you for your word and how it's powerful, how it changes us. We pray by your spirit this morning that your word will have that effect. Lord, I pray that we'll see these verses afresh and we'll understand them well. God, be with me. Help me not to fumble my words, or to present your word improperly. Give grace in these ways, we pray. In Christ's name, amen. The United States of America has what is called a constitution. But what comes right before that constitution is called the preamble. We have a preamble to our constitution in this country. So we the people of the United States of America, in order to form a more perfect union, establish justice, ensure domestic tranquility. This is all fourth grade memory. Ensure domestic tranquility. Provi- I didn't just memorize this for the sake of the sermon. Provide for the common defense. Promote the general welfare and secure the blessings of liberty to ourselves and our posterity. Do ordain and establish this constitution for the United States of America. This is the preamble. And in some ways you could take out all that middle Part And you could say, we the people of the United States of America, do ordain and establish this Constitution for the United States of America. But all of this functions as an introduction, or a preface, or an opening to our country's most important document. And in many ways, what we're going to look at this morning is is Jesus' preamble of sorts to a, a portion in his sermon that is having to do with the law of God. Which would have been a very foundational document for those who were sitting with Jesus on that day on the hillside. In our own statement of faith that we have here as a church. It lays out, at least in my estimation, what Jesus' understanding of the law is. It says this. We believe that the law of God is the eternal and unchangeable rule of His moral government. That it is wholly just And good. So this is the the framework that I'm working out of as we talk about God's law. The law of God is eternal, it's unchangeable, it's wholly just and good. But the the key word that we need to take out of that sentence and and that we're going to be thinking about this morning is the word moral. Since the Reformation, when guys like Martin Luther and Zwingli and Calvin and all of them were deciding to pull off and break from the Catholic Church... They, there has, they have traditionally seen distinctions in the law of God. This is a little bit technical, but I want you to stay with me. This is my stay with me. So there are several aspects of the law of God that we, we need to understand in order to understand our passages more And what has been traditionally set for us is that there are civic aspects to the law, there are ceremonial aspects to the law, and there are moral aspects of the law. And that's what a lot of these guys saw when they were breaking off from the Catholic churches as part of what they were thinking through and, and wrote a lot about. So as we go through this passage, what Jesus has in mind is not ceremonial or civic aspects of the law. Okay? We clearly know that the ceremonial aspects, things like the slaughtering of, of bulls and goats and all of that, we, we clearly know that that's been done away with when we look at the book of Hebrews we know that that's been done away with. We know that there are civic aspects of the law that having to do with one another that, that have been done away with and even dietary laws and all that that we saw in, in the book of Galatians. You remember looking at Galatians and there was that issue with Paul and Peter and Peter started eating kosher foods with all these other Jews instead of being free from that. So we're, we're free from those dietary restrictions that the Jews would have had under the Old Testament But we are, as Christians, under moral aspects of the law of God. So, no, Christians are not under civic aspects of the law of Moses or ceremonial aspects of the law of Moses. But we are under the moral aspects of the law. So our text this morning, again, is like a a preamble or an introduction to what Jesus is going to teach us about the moral aspect of the law. Over the coming weeks, we're going to see that the law of God w- was not something that was supposed to be simply externalized. It wasn't supposed to simply be a list of do's and don'ts for the Jews. It was, to be, it was not to be simply externalized. It was supposed to be passionately internalized. So over the coming weeks, we'll look at Jesus say, the law says, do not kill people, right? So do not kill people, which is an external activity if you want to put it that way killing somebody would be external but jesus says but i'm going to say to you that if you hate somebody in your heart if you harbor anger towards somebody in your heart you have killed them which is internal he says the law says don't commit adultery which is the external act but Jesus says, but I say to you, if you look at a woman with lust, if you look at a man with lust, you have committed adultery in your heart, which is internal. So Jesus is driving at an understanding of the law that internalizes it. His expectation for his disciples, as is fleshed out in other places of the Bible, is to obey and to heed the moral aspects of the law by God's grace through the Spirit of God that is within you. So with that in mind, let's look again at verse 17. This is Jesus speaking. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. No doubt many of you parents have seen your son or daughter or some of you who have nieces or nephews or grandkids. You've seen your child or grandchild do something that you and they both knew that they shouldn't do. Of course, your grandparents actually don't factor in because you let your grandkids do whatever they want anyway. But you've seen a child go to do something that they shouldn't do, that they know that they shouldn't do. They're reaching their hand in to the cookie jar right before supper where you and them both know that they should not do it. Or they go to touch an antique or something and you and them both know That they shouldn't do it. And so what do you do? You look at them and you say, don't even think about it. And this is what Jesus is doing with his disciples. He's on this hillside, sitting with them. And he's looking at them in the eyes and saying, don't think for a second that I have come to destroy the law and the prophets. There's a certain expectation that Jesus is apparently seeing in the eyes of these new disciples. Or maybe he's heard them talking. Or maybe he just flat out knows their hearts. But he knows that his listeners apparently are thinking, this Messiah is going to do something different or do away with the law. Remember that Jesus has taken a position of rabbi. He's sitting on the hillside with all of these people around him. But to this point, he hasn't started talking about the Law and the Prophets. He's blessed them. He's told them to be salt and light. But he hasn't said... Now I want you to think of the book of Genesis. Or I want you to think of Exodus. Usually when we begin a sermon here, we say, turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, or whatever the passage is for that morning. You know when you come here on Sunday morning that we're going to open the Bible and talk about it. But Jesus hasn't quite done that yet. Again, he's blessed them. He's told them there to be salt and light but the law and the prophets had not come up yet. So the Jews may have been thinking to themselves is this Messiah going to do away with the law? And Jesus flat out says don't even think about it. Jesus has no intention or no desire to do away with the law and the prophets. He has no intention on making the law and the prophets sound old or antiquated. Something to get rid of. In fact, he does the opposite. He reveres the law. He says, I have not come to abolish, he says. I haven't come to destroy the Old Testament. Part of the word here for destroy is the Greek word luo. And if you ask anybody who has studied the Greek language, which is what the New Testament is written in, the word luo is the bane of your study of the Greek language. It's in the, new, in, 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 the, in the English, we have different endings for different words, right? So you take the word, like, fix, um, and you say fix, fixes, fixed, fixing. You are, you, we add endings on to words, and the same thing is with Greek. So we would take the word luo in Greek class, and we would practice by putting different endings onto the, that word. And no matter how much you forget about Greek, which at this point is a lot, no matter how much you forget about Greek, you don't forget that initial adding on to the endings of luo, luo, luis, lue, luam, luare, losing. That's not to impress you, that's just rote memory. That's just sitting in my dorm room, flashcard after flashcard. But it's it's difficult, but it's the bane of our Greek study. It's tough, but this word luo means either to destroy or to abolish. Or it means to loosen something. It could mean to destroy something like a building. We're going to luo this building. Or it could mean we're going to luo our shoe. We're going to loosen up our shoe a little bit. And both meanings can apply here. Jesus has no intention of destroying or abolishing the law and the prophets. He has no intention of loosening it and getting rid of it somehow. Instead, he's unwaveringly committed to keeping the moral elements of the law maintained and stoked within his disciples. So he says that he has no interest of being rid of the Old Testament. Instead, Jesus is proclaiming himself as the one who has actually come to fulfill the Old Testament. The great preacher of the 19th century, Charles Spurgeon, said this, he is himself the fulfillment and substance of the types and prophecies and commands of the law. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. All the types and shadows of the Old Testament, the sacrificial system, and all that went with it, all those prophecies, all of it finds its fulfillment in Jesus. But Jesus' fulfillment of the law and the prophets isn't just in the context of fulfilling certain prophecies. And that's usually how we look at this. We usually think, oh yeah, of course, Jesus is the fulfillment of things from the Old Testament. we Think of different prophecies having to do with him being like a lamb led to a slaughter. Say, so, okay, yeah, Jesus is the, 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 the fulfillment of that. Or he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Oh, yeah, Jesus is going to be the fulfillment of that. And that's all true. But it's more than that. Jesus is the complete embodiment and fulfillment of the entire Old Testament. All of its parts. All of its pieces. He is the goal of it. He is the entire point of it. He is the fulfillment of of it. He says as much in Luke chapter 24. Do you remember when Jesus was on the road to Emmaus and he, was, he was, it was after his death and resurrection and he's walking on the road to Emmaus and he comes up with two other guys and he begins having a conversation with them. And in, and, excuse me, and in that conversation he says that he is the point of the Old and the Old Testament. The Law and the Prophets. He said, later in the chapter in chapter 24 he says, everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so that they could understand the scriptures. So Jesus himself, in Luke 24 even, he says that he is the one to fulfill all that is written in the Old Testament. So hear this. A biblical understanding of the Old Testament scriptures can only come when you realize that Jesus is its centerpiece. That Jesus is the point of it. That Jesus is the fulfillment of it. This is the only way that we'll truly get and understand the Old Testament. When you realize that Jesus is the complete key to understanding it. So he's the key to understanding it. But he's also the key to fulfilling it. Verse 18. I tell you the truth, until heaven and earth disappear. Not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of the pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. I think it's funny. You Look at the first five words of verse 18. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. (laughs) And as if Jesus could do anything different than tell the truth. But you hear a lot of people nowadays, it's kind of like this. A lot of people nowadays, before they say something true, they say, I'm not going to lie. I'm not going to lie. That was really cool. To which I respond, I don't expect you to lie in the first place. But that's kind of how Jesus begins this verse. He assures them of the fact that he's telling them the truth. He says, until heaven and earth disappear, the law will stand until everything is accomplished. But Jesus is saying that until then, until heaven and earth pass away, every stroke of the pen and every dot is going to be accomplished from the law. Nothing is going to disappear from the law until the end. Not one stroke of the pen. Not one Dot, we have this expression in English. When we say something is completed, we say, oh, we've we've crossed all of our T's and we've dotted all of our I's. And that's when we know that something is officially finished. But do you hear the power in Jesus' statement here? The, The confidence that Jesus has about what he's saying, the authority in his words. The understanding that Jesus must have had About the way in which certain events, uh, about even the end, and the way all of that is going to play out. He knew it all. Again, if you're one of those disciples sitting there on the hill listening to him, or even for us, listening to this passage now, the things that Jesus knows about and teaches about are staggering, especially when you couple it with the way that he teaches with such authority. Who is Jesus to know anything about How the law and the end of the world and all of that pan out. He's the king. He's the one with the authority. He knows how things are going to pan. Look at verse 19. Anyone who breaks one of the least of these commandments. And teaches others to do the same. Will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands. Will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. So there's this contrast. Between... Somebody who is least in the kingdom and somebody who is great in the kingdom. Somebody who is least in the kingdom will, will disobey the least of the commandments. And they're going to teach other people to disobey the least of the commandments as well. But somebody who is going to be great in the kingdom, they are going to practice the commands. And they're going to teach others to obey them. And they will be called great in the kingdom. So there's this contrast here between these two sides. Jesus is pitting them against each other. And by doing this, he's both warning us and encouraging us in how we live and how we teach the law. But one of the things I want you to notice is that both groups, whether they're least in the kingdom or great in the kingdom, they are still both in the kingdom. And I find this to be incredibly gracious of God hardwired into us is the idea that only those who obey the rules are going to get into heaven. Only those who have it all together and to do the good works and all of that will enter the kingdom. But Jesus says that there are going to be people who have broken these commandments and have even taught other people to break these commandments and they're still going to be in the kingdom. This is grace. But this doesn't give us a license to be a lawbreaker. This doesn't mean that we can break the least of the commandments because God is gracious. Remember what Paul says in Romans chapter 6. He says, shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? No, of course. God forbid not. But But what this does show is that personal perfection isn't what is going to get us into heaven. It isn't going to get us into the kingdom. We don't trust in our own righteousness or our own good works to get us into heaven. We trust in the righteousness and the works of Jesus. But we need to keep in mind the warning here. If you do disobey the least of the commandments and you teach other people to disobey the least of the commandments, you will be called least in the kingdom. But also keep in mind the encouragement that if you do obey and you teach others to as well, and you practice them. You will be called great in God's kingdom. But look at what he says in verse 20. As he begins to wrap this preamble up. Verse 20. For I tell you that unless your righteousness. Surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. You will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. So wait a second. Jesus just said. In verse 19, that those who disregard the least of the commandments and teach others to do the same, and those who actually revere the law and practice the, the law, will be in the kingdom. But both, so they'll both be there. But then in verse 20, he says that our righteousness has to surpass that of the Jewish religious elite in order to enter the kingdom. So what does he mean? Huh? It sounds contrary The Pharisees and the teachers of the law were really the big guys in town. These were the guys that were considered righteous. These guys were the ones who were considered spiritual. They were the ones who were considered close to God. They obeyed the law of God to a T as well as they could. But then they added more laws on top of God's law and then obeyed those as well. They looked incredibly righteous and spiritual in the eyes of those who would have been sitting around Jesus on this day. One author said, The teachers were considered the best expounders of Scripture, and the Pharisees as the most illustrious patterns of holiness. It was a proverb among them, the Pharisees and the teachers, that if but two men were to enter the kingdom of heaven, one would be a scribe and one would be a Pharisee. One would be a teacher of the law, and one would be a doer of the law. But Jesus says that if you want to get into heaven, you need to be even more righteous than these guys. And by saying this, he's effectively condemning the Pharisees and the scribes. He's condemning those teachers and Pharisees. And saying that they will not enter into the kingdom. Because their righteousness needs to be higher than even what it already is. But that's, that's daunting. That's a, that's a cliff that we can't jump off of. We cannot do that in and of ourselves. But the key to understanding this is that Jesus' disciples are Different in how they approach the law. We don't approach the law like a Pharisee. We don't add our own laws to that law. The Pharisees and scribes approached the law all wrong. When the teachers of the law would teach it, they would externalize it. When the Pharisees lived according to law, it was all about external. So their righteousness was really a fraud because it was all on the outside. Their interpretation of the law was in order to make them clean up good on the outside, to make them look spiritual in the eyes of other people, to be show-offs. But for disciples of Jesus, the law of God would not be an external facade. It would be an internal reality. Hundreds of years before Jesus came on the scene, the prophet Jeremiah said that God's people would come under what would be called the new covenant that we mentioned earlier. And he says that those who are under the new covenant, which is us here today, we would have the law written on our hearts. The heart of a disciple has the law of God written on it. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law would have been against outward adultery. They would have been against lustful thoughts. Or they would have been against that outward adultery. They would have been against the murder of somebody. But they wouldn't have been against the anger that they harbored in their heart. They wouldn't have been against the lust. That was in their minds. And this is what Jesus is driving at. The only way that Jesus' disciples can have a righteousness. That exceeds that of the teachers of the law. And the Pharisees. Is to have the law of God written on their heart. To have the law of God internalized. Not simply externalized. So we learn about the proper righteousness that disciples of Christ have. Not by destroying it. Not by abolishing or getting rid of the law from our Bibles, but by diving into it and applying it rightly with the perspective of Jesus. What Jesus calls in Matthew 23, the weightier matters of the law, that we exhibit justice and mercy and faithfulness. This is the difference. This is the difference between living under the old covenant and the new covenant. Everyone under the new covenant, as a disciple of Jesus, has the law of God internalized and seeks to flesh it out in their daily lives. One commentator said this, the difference in the new covenant is not a new and different ethical standard, but Christ's completed work and his sending the Holy Spirit to empower and to enable believers to more faithfully obey God's law. As Jesus continues to teach us in this chapter, the main problem he has is with the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, the religious of the elite of that day, Who have completely externalized the law. They've made it all about the outside, how you look in front of people, instead of internalizing the law and realizing it's about being right before him. But I want to close with this. Be very sure that you are not simply externalizing your Christianity. I've said I've said it several times before, but the kind of Christianity that I grew up in was very rule-based, it was very Law based. It was all about looking the right way and saying the right things. It was incredibly focused on the externals. But for Jesus, it's an internal reality. If I can ask it this way, what makes you feel spiritual? What makes you feel godly or close to God? Is it an entrance into this building with a few crosses around? What makes you feel godly? There may be some here today who have not trusted in Christ. Where all of it does feel very outside and, and fringe. And, and it's not an internal reality. And just try to work hard and pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. And, and do what you think might be the right thing. But you're not quite sure. Or come into this building because okay, well if I want to be a Christian. Then I've got to walk into that Building. but the point is an internal realization. Jesus is after disciples who had that internal realization that the law of God is written on our hearts. That is the goal, the internalization of God's moral law. Let's pray.